right, welcome back to School of Science Radio. I'm Gino Ganello, joined as always by Matthew Chandler. And this week we have a very, very special guest. Uh, he goes by Raj, the name Roger Bennett. You know him well if you're here in America, for sure. Uh, the Men in Blazers podcast, NBC Sports, obviously the show that airs after the Premier League weekend ends. Raj, how you doing today? Oh, it's a joy to be with you, Matthew and Gino. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on. It's, a, you know, it's great to be able to talk to you. Um, obviously, you know Everton pretty well. And let's get into that a little bit uh, before we dive into some of what's happened over the past week. Um, talk to us about how you became an Everton fan, who some of your favorite players are, your memories. Let's, let's, get, it, let's get into it right now. Oh, I thought we were here to celebrate Everton's September title. <laughs> we were just going to relive oh, one of the greatest, arguably the greatest month in the Premier League history. Um, I mean, going back into the, you know, why am I an Evertonian? It's like asking me, why am I human? I was just born and that is what I am. Yeah, my dad was an Evertonian. Uh, my grandfather was an Evertonian. And, you know, the joke of of the the podcast is that I've always just assumed that it was utterly and completely just in our blood. And then I found out that my dad grew up in the days when there was no football on television and football was what you went to watch as a distraction. And you'd go to very common and a lot of your older, older, older listeners in your over 70 category <laughs> are all blue mercy relate to this. You go to watch Everton one week and then you go Anfield the next. And it was just like what you did on a Saturday and when my dad got to be about eight or nine, he'd go with his mates to the game on his own, which is mind-boggling. And he decided he was going to commit to one of the teams. And he went to the newsstand to buy, in those days, they didn't sell replica jerseys. It was just badges, rosettes. And he went to buy, decided that a Liverpool rosette, Liverpool badge, a button for your American listeners. And the newsstand guy was like, sorry, mate, uh, we've run out of Liverpool. Liverpool pins, uh, but we've got loads of blue ones left. And so my dad, wanting instant gratification, was like, all right, all right, mate, I'll have the blue one. And that's what, how he reinforced his Everton fandom. And it was just by chance, ultimately, that I became an Evertonian, that chance of them being sold out of, of, of Liverpool crap. And it's the greatest chance. Like, I'd be a, if I, we were Reds, I'd be a, a different person, an awful person. I wouldn't appreciate the small wonders of life. I just take winning for granted. And it is, in all sincerity, being an Evertonian, it's a way, a worldview. It's how I look at life. It's how I look at, you know, community first, the collective always being more important than the individuals, and mostly savoring moments of, of glory, of wonder, and never taking them for granted. It's really the core part of who I am. What's one of those moments that you do hold close to your heart? One of those memories that, you know, you know, because you're an Evertonian, because winning isn't taken for granted, um, you hold close to the chest because it means so much to you. Yeah, I have so many, um, even as you asked the question. I've great ones and terrible ones, and I wouldn't want any of them to be any different. Uh, Andy King's uh, goal in the Merseyside derby where we won 1-0, the first sentient memory I have, of, uh, of derbies when I was like six and uh, just watching him he actually mishit it but I didn't know what a mishit was when I was a kid it just looked like a wonderful intentional goal of wonder into the top corner 
Everton winning. There's a Liverpool defender, um, Phil Thompson, who had an incredible perm, and they just interviewed him and said, how do you feel? And he said, I'm sick. Sick as a parrot. You can actually see it on YouTube. I can't believe that hasn't had like 20 million views. Just like that is burnt into my, my fiber of Everton winning, Liverpool losing, and it just meaning everything and almost meaning too much. All the way through to... Um, yeah, I'm just finishing a show, uh, a Carlo Ancelotti uh, special for television. And at the end of it, um, I, we take a, a minute to talk about what it means to be an Evertonian. And taking my daughter to her first game, I have four kids. Um, and I first went to a game when I turned seven, Everton Derby County, April the 1st. And um, so each of my kids have taken to uh, their game as soon as they turned seven. She was the last to go. Uh, I was there with my, my four kids and my dad, three generations of blues. It was Manchester United. Um, you know, we were terrible uh, when I, I took her to the game. Um, I went with very low expectations. We won 4-0. And just every single goal, as it went in, standing there at Goodison Park with three generations of blues. My dad, you know, I was with my kids. But my dad, in the photographs that we have, looks like the biggest kid of all of us. Just the joy ascending to the heavens as everyone in Goodison Park just grabs everyone else in delirious wonder. And all of us realise, not just my, you know, the three, three generations there watching us just smack Manchester United down. 4-0 was amazing. But every single human being uh, in that stand knew that they were going to savour that memory for the rest of their lives. And that ultimately... Um, is one of the singular joys of being an Evertonian. That's uh, that's that's awesome. I, I love to hear that. I've uh, you know, being here in America, I uh, don't get to obviously travel to England too much, so I haven't been to an, an Everton match yet. I have been to uh, uh, my my dad and my brother are Tottenham fans, so I have been to a Tottenham Liverpool match, and Tottenham didn't lose, so that was enjoyable. Um, <laughs> it was it was zero zero. It was the most exciting scoreless game I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, very, but, my dad, my dad calls Everton's approach to life. He he says we don't lose. Uh, we're just very good at not winning. <laughs> and uh, so it sounds like you went to a game where Tottenham didn't lose. Yeah, it was not winning. No, yeah, it was it was uh, it was definitely exciting. But um, you know, obviously, so many memories um, for you involve you know winning. For us, me and Matthew, probably not as many due to the fact of, of our age group and, and just the past 25 years of Everton. Yeah. I, think, I think both of us born around 1995. was the, I was born in 1995, and that's the last time uh, Everton obviously won a trophy. Um, so, you know, not You ruined winning. it for all of us, Gina. <laughs> yes, I know. It's all my fault, and I apologize. And it's been all downhill <laughs> since I've joined. Um, but, uh, you know, this year has been, I think, one of the more exciting years, you know, it takes you back to maybe uh, Bobby Martinez's first, first uh, season at Everton. Amazing. That was um, unbelievable. And, and Everton obviously started off, as you mentioned, with that amazing month. Then things falter a little bit after the international break. But we're back to winning ways now. 3-2 over Fulham this past weekend. Um, and, and this is where we'll bring in uh, Matthew as well. Um, there were four changes from the United defeat. Um, Godfrey in, uh, Mina, Awobi, and Richarlison, who was back, obviously, from his red card suspension. Um, Dominic Calvert-Lewin can't stop scoring. Uh, two goals for him. Um, Ducore a goal. Everton had a 3-1 lead at halftime. They held on for the 3-2 win. Um, Raj, we'll start with you. 
Um, back to winning ways after three defeats. We're up to sixth. What was your, I guess, initial opinions, you know, initial reactions to this one? Yeah, I, I'd say it's Thanksgiving um, in America this week. So I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, first and foremost, I'm just incredibly thankful that there's any football at all right now. And like, that is the baseline, winning or losing or, or whatever. You know, the schedule is crazy. The pileup, the grind is, is insane. These players are humans and they are shattered utterly utterly shattered so everything should be kind of passed through that lens as we're judging them this is not a normal season it can't be judged by normal standards and everything I'm about to say about Everton is that the baseline is I'm just so glad that they're playing it's just the world is so chaotic right now um, there's just darkness all over the place football is an incredible light in that darkness and uh, and I'm incredibly, I, I think it's amazing that we're able, even able to to have this conversation. Uh, I mean, there's so much that's good. Carlo is, is a remarkable human being. It's a period of transition. Everton remain a work in progress. And that Fulham game kind of captured it. That There were just moments of human wonder, of deliriousness, of... Uh, nothing can go wrong now. Um, and there's just moments of, of catastrophic, um, shattered, uh, panic play where there were moments in that second half, honestly, we were 3-2 up. But if you'd stopped the game and said, would you take a 3-3 draw right now? I'd be like, yeah, bite your arm off for it. Because we've all watched Everton so many times and seen them drop deeper and deeper and deeper and panic and, and just almost be unable to complete a pass. And we end up, we all seen it in the 93rd minute, we end up losing. So I, it was a rare game of true joy and an imperious wonder. Hammers, God love, Dina, God love, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. I mean, there's three players in Europe who have scored 10 goals this season. It's Haaland, Lewandowski, and... Dominic Calvert-Lewin and Dominic could actually take that one level further than the other two guys because his goal is to score off every single body part in one season which is an incredibly it's not a single limb that man cannot score off he is remarkable Richarlison is our king eight games without him not a single win welcome back an impact within 41 uh, bloody seconds so there's so much that's good Good, but I'd say most of the players seemed utterly knackered in that second half, which they would be if they'd come off a long-haul flight from South America, played three games in a week in World Cup qualifying. But, I mean, the darkness, we can, we can break down, uh, and I'm sure we will. But I'd like to focus on the good parts first. Matthew, how about you? I think uh, it, was a, it was kind of a good game to remind people of, like, that Everton is still very much a work in progress under Ancelotti because I think you saw what we can be maybe further down the line under him um, in that first half. Certainly once Fulham equalised, I thought we we upped the pressure a lot. Um, like Roger said, I thought obviously Richardson was instrumental. Uh, Luca Dean gets two assists. Um, Alex Iwobi as well, I thought, probably had his best game this season at right wing back, bizarrely. Um, but at the same time, you see there are still frailties, there are still uh, defensive issues to iron out, and obviously there's fatigue. And I think 
I think the temptation is to say maybe that a better team in Fulham maybe would have punished us more severely for that second half display. But, you know, you could turn it the other way and say we showed a lot of resilience and we showed a lot of character not to buckle in the sort of game where under previous managers we did. Matthew, um, you sounded like Brendan Rodgers when you said that. You showed <laughs> a lot of character. I mean, um, with the, if uh, Fulham are a terrible football team though, right? I mean, they are oh, a, my Lord, that, a, I feel for their fans. I mean, to come up and down three times with hope each time and to repeat yeah. the same mistake each time. Yeah, you know, I mean, defensively, they're not very good. I don't think we exposed that. But I think, um, you know, they have got, they got you know, I thought Adam Luckman caused us a lot of problems. Um, so probably more problems than he caused opposition teams for Everton. Um, and I thought, you know, they were undoubtedly the better team in the second half. But, yeah, without wanting to sound too Brendan Rodgers-esque, I thought um, it was kind of a good reminder of, you know, the the many different ways that we've improved under Ancelotti, not just um, sort of offensively, but also seeing games out and just having a bit of sort of having a bit of sort of in like you know game management which I think we've lacked in, in previous seasons. Um, and, you know, I think we, we just needed a win, however we got it on on Sunday and after the you know, three defeats in a row. Um, and I'm not really going to... I know a lot of people kind of jumped on the second half performance, but I'm not going to complain too much when we just lost three in a row. So. God, um, Wobi is a, single, a, a symbol of Carlo's greatness. Um, <laughs> I mean, he made a Wobi almost, almost... Look like a professional football player, which is very exciting. Incredibly, <laughs> I, I, when Awobi played last year, the first couple of games, he was so he's brilliant. First few, he was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, he looked like a cult figure in the making. Just a perfect Everton player. Like sometimes he'd do something unbelievable. Lots of times he'd do something that was utter crap. But he would give his utter everything in those first couple of games. That was like, wow, that is like a true Everton trope. That is like. You know, you think about the the Everton greats like Tim Cahill, um, Stevie Naismith, these guys who were like limited in skill, but 110% in terms of passion and commitment. And then it just tailed off and he became very quickly a confused, um, ill decision uh, making um, riddle that needed to be solved. And it was genuinely, <laughs> genuinely thrilling. <laughs> uh, to see him seem to find himself. But the, the, the challenge for Ancelotti, I mean, there's a lot of them, um, how to keep uh, James in the heart of that team. And I mean, this is against Fulham. This is against a toothless team. And I agree with you that one of the joys of Saturday was that Everton have a trope, which is when a player needs a lift, when they play against Everton, they get that lift. The striker who's not scored in 47 games play Everton he is guaranteed to score the team that have not won at home for five seasons play Everton we're very very charitable and to have, <laughs> have Luckman not get his revenge to have Robinson not get yeah. hit, all these Everton discards normally <laughs> turn up for that to, to escape without either of them doing any damage was a wonder but you've got Hammers in the middle and one of the challenges against a team less toothless than Fulham and we have a lot of them Coming up, when you look at that fixture list, I mean, Leeds, we, we can talk about that. Is a, that is honestly a terrifying prospect. But how do you protect that back line? The back line itself 
which is which is a work in progress with Yerry Mina at the heart, who he's like a party motivator just in the team for the Sellies, but they're defending not so much with Hamez. So great going forward, so weak going backwards, and we cannot um, afford to have him be a one-way player. That's the, that's the, the challenge at the heart of our club it's- right now especially when he's playing on that right side without Seamus Coleman, um, obviously not having that defensive um, yeah. player on that right side, obviously. But he did, he drifted more centrally on Sunday. I mean, yeah, no, absolutely. Better, absolutely. better for doing that because it's obviously his more natural position. Yeah. But, but by the way, we miss Seamus also, just yeah. in terms of his leadership. That was something yeah. I noticed in the Fulham game when moments were down uh, and there was darkness of thought. There was very little leadership across that team. There was no one who was screaming at the players, uh, raising the intensity, demanding more um, out of the, the the rest of the team. We miss Seamus in so many ways. And Carlo is fully aware of that. He's quite taken with Seamus. Again, in this interview um, that's going to run on Monday on American television, we did. He went out of his way several times to bring Seamus into the conversation. That is a key gentleman that can give us a lift. A lift. But that defending is a massive challenge, not just Yerry. Uh, ben Godfrey, God love, still adjusting to life in Merseyside. He's almost like a wide-eyed, like a, a late-round NBA draft pick who, who knows he's going to get like a minute and a half off the bench and wants to prove himself so desperately. He's almost afraid to make a mistake. But Jordan Pickford, on your show, how do you think about him? How do you talk about him? Because that is a he's an enigma with his contractual guarantee to cock up once again. <laughs> we try not we try not to talk about him too much, Rich, because <laughs> yeah. we to death now. We, yeah, um, we, we beat the topic to death, I think, at this point, just because, I, I, you know, it, like you said, he, he's an enigma. So we, we talk about him every week. It's, uh, you know, it's some weeks he's good, some weeks he's bad, but there's always a talking point, right, Matthew? <laughs> So I thought he was well, he's certainly not at fault for either of the Fulham goals, I don't think, on Sunday, I wouldn't say. Um, but I think a lot of the issues in the back line probably on Sunday stemmed from, from Yerry Mina, I thought. I thought certainly the first goal he let uh, Bobby Reid go way too easily. And I, well, I think we the three at the back is kind of an interesting setup, which I think maybe suits Everton better with players that we've got. Um, but at the same time, if you're playing an extra centre back, then you know it's quite it's quite hard to, to not imagine Mina and Keane on the pitch at the same time. But then, I'm not still not convinced they work particularly well as a partnership. Um, I don't look how many clean sheets they've kept together. I think something like seven in 35, 34 games or something like that together. And you know, I like Mina, but I just. He needs someone to kind of lead him. I think Michael Keane's the same to an extent, and I don't think either of them are our natural leaders. I think Mason Hoggate's a lot more suited to that role. I think Mason Hoggate's also got sort of recovery speed and the agility to compensate for Mino Keane's lack of uh, recovery speed. So um, I would expect... It was weird because obviously he brought Hoggate back for the United game and then benched him on... Sunday. I mean, he didn't look fit against United, but we'd have hoped maybe with two more weeks he'd have been in a better place. Yeah. Um, wouldn't be massively surprised if he comes in for Leeds just because of how shambolic we looked at times at the back. Uh, I thought Ben Godfrey was, was okay. I know he gave away the penalty, but he, 
other than that, I thought he was pretty solid. Um, yeah. There's a lot of thinking to do there for Ancelotti, probably more than anywhere else on the pitch. Yeah, I think um, we're just, um, you know, I think you're right. I think the, the pace of the back line with Mina and Keane in there is, is a severe issue, um, especially when you're playing two our three back system, three center back system. Um, it's going to be a, it's definitely going to be a, uh, a difficult challenge for them. Um, and against Leeds, that's something that would scare me just because I know, of course they have um, some really talented guys going forward there. Um, but uh, we, we talked a little, we've obviously talked about the defense. Um, we also mentioned uh, Richarlison, Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Uh, let's start with Richarlison, um, Raj. What's the thing that he brings to this team? We talked about this a little bit last week on the podcast, but from your perspective, what's the thing that he brings to this team that makes this takes this team from a you know uh, you know an okay team, uh, a decent team to what they were in the first half against Fulham? He's good at football. It's <laughs> that simple. I mean, he's he's fast and he's committed. And he gives of himself. He gives himself all over the field. Like an underrated aspect of his game is his willingness to cover back in a truly aggressive and hungry fashion. But it's more without him, we lack pace. And if you're an opposing team, an Everton without Rich Allison, you just have to smother Dominic Calvert Lewin almost uh, in an American uh, sporting parlance, double team him, triple team him. And Everton really aren't going to hurt you. And Rich Allison keeps teams honest. His speed, uh, his willingness to, uh, to, I mean, really put himself about in a deeply, deeply um, hungry fashion. It means that we have threats all over the field. And his link play with DCL uh, is also uh, phenomenal. But it's more without Rich Allison, we are really a kind of uh, one-man arrowhead that is far too easy to blunt. And so it's the tandem of the two that can make defences buckle in a way that we just are so impotent uh, without him. And there's no third option. Our bench, you know, the threats off the bench are so... I mean, Bernard, God love, he's, like a, he's, a, he's gorgeous. I mean, he's like a little mascot. He's kind of proof that no one is too small to ride the Premier League ride. I adore him, um, and he gives me an incredible burst of joy, but he's remarkably disappointing. And um, so that's it. It's like just the size of our squad right now. Without, it's really our lack of options that make Rich Arlison such a human wonder. And then there's part of what we project on Rich Arlison also. We, we project that he adores the club. We project he gets an incredible kick out of being a blue. You know, it's thrilling to watch him throw his shirt to... To, uh, to a fan post game, and so there's a uh, the, there's a feeling that this Brazilian uh, who grew up where he grew up, who came through, um, that he kind of fits and truly understands the club, and uh, it, it's just a the, there's a wonderful the world feels better when Rich Charleston is part of it. I think um, as well, what's so I think what Everton fans love so much about Charleston and Calvert Lewin is. Like Roger touched on, it's like it's how much they seem to love playing for Everton. They're not players who necessarily have angled for moves away um, ever before. And you know, even though neither of them were like boyhood Ever Evertonians, they look like sort of living out their lifelong dream playing for us. And it's 
um, I mean, Roger mentioned Tim Cahill before, and it's that kind of that kind of um, connection, I think, with fans that players of Cahill's era probably had more with with Everton fans that they've got now, uh, with Calvert Lewin and Richarlison, and it's just as much, I think it's just as important in some way to have that sort of um, rapport with your players as it is to have, you know, Roger <laughs> calling him he's good, he's good at football. It's just as important to have the right. Um, the right sort of relationship. Yes, with then, yes, it, it, it reminds me of, you mentioned Luckman earlier. It always cracked me up that he came through with great height. Yeah, he was our South London lad. He was going to be a GM. Scored his one goal and immediately post-match after his one goal uh, told the media that it's always been his dream to play for Real Madrid. And like that, that was just like the classic. He never scored again. Um, and we we do project. You're right. The Tim Cahill era, where players, you know, stayed with a team for an extended period, that is long gone. I'm sure Rich Allison's agent is salivating about the potential move to Team X and God Love. But life does feel life is more thrilling. The unexpected can always happen. He's just he tries things that most human beings when they pull on an Everton shirt can't even think of um, and it is it is a joy and there is something classically Evertonian about him in terms of yes he's blessed with skill I mean incredibly skill-soaked Evertonian but, but just that 100%, 100% passion and 100% commitment all the time that Everton ethos where the individuals, not always the best, but the true commitment to the collective. To see a player of his skill and his kind of South American uh, background come through and consistently give his everything and be furious when he's substituted off and just ache to be on that field, that in itself is, a, is, is an, a, an intrinsic joy as an Everton fan. I loved his reaction as well when he got subbed on Sunday because it was absolutely gutted to come off. And, and I like that. And it's not something that Ancelotti got asked about it afterwards and maybe you know, people trying to make a big deal out of it. And he just said, like, you know, that's just how he is. That's just his character. He just loves playing football and, and it's not a problem for him. And, and and you want players like that, don't you? You want people who are, are dying to play for your club. And not yeah, um, you want that. And you want a manager like Carlo, exactly, yeah. who understands um, what is going on in the head. I mean, oh God, even that, what is going on in the head of Rich Arles and what an incredible, there can be very few human beings in the world who can pretend to understand what's going on in the head of Rich Arles and little chicken dances going on at different times, just oh, <laughs> spasming in his brain, goals floating around, oh, shirtless sellies, more chickens, but Carlo understands all of it, and that is Carlo's brilliance. You know, in the interview uh, that I did, it is fascinating. Um, one of the things that has really stayed with me about it is that he said the secret to transformation and the secret to management, and it wasn't clear to me when he joined the club if it was a great move, whether he was just kind of doing it to keep his toe in football and he you know, a bit embarrassed, kind of fallen down a little bit, a few levels, but Premier League will take the job. It's, you know, better than long walks on the beach years and retirement and that kind of thing. I mean, it felt, it felt like a blue chip CEO. Like, how is he going to take to life for the scrappy startup? And it's been completely just marvellous watching him 
revel in Everton, revel in the culture of the club, revel in the family nature of the club, revel in the city. Like he genuinely adores so much. He adores the people of the city. He adores the scout mentality. He adores walking on the beaches. He adores the Crosby Beach. I mean, the guy is having a blast and he's having a blast personally. He's having a blast at the football club. And that transformational spirit that he brings is rooted um, in his sense. He says, I, I treat, you know, football players, that's just what they do, play football. He said the secret to being a, a winning manager is to realize that they're all human beings. And that is what, uh, and, and to treat them like that and to have them treat each other like that and to have them treat the staff at the club like that. And that's what's been remarkable. You know, in the past, we've, we've in, or in the past couple of years, Everton have had this ethos of overpaying for anyone from, who's ever pulled on a Barcelona shirt or, you know, oh, they come from a big team. The fact that they were not even in the squad, we kind of, no, we write that bit out of the story. But Carlo's able to get them and then do the next thing, which is actually to make them enjoy it, feel great about themselves, love it, love each other, and bring out the best in them and to play play with uh, with an optimism and a wonder and a sense of gratitude and that's uh, that's what i see in richarlison that's what i, I mean hammers that's what i see in hammers like hammers could have come and kind of big time the club and really kind of given a little bit and maybe taken a couple of games off and kind of just coasted uh, not at all also we've seen what he's done with with gomes who you know was our icon uh, times over the past couple of seasons, no longer in the team. Like that, that, that his his understanding of the mindset of the players and his harnessing them together. That's been that's been one of the joys of the season for me. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, <clears throat> it's just you know the 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 identity of the team is so different from what it what it usually is. And and you know I think a lot of us were were kind of wondering how Hamas would adapt to a team like this, but it's, it seems like he has kind of bought into everything Carlo Ancelotti is, um, is saying there. And, you know, he's made some, Ancelotti's made such a difference in this team. And I think that's the most evident in a player that plays striker for Everton, uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, 13 goals now in all competitions, 10 in the premier league. He had 15 total in all competitions last season. Um, what have you seen from Dominic Calvert-Lewin? What is, maybe Ancelotti said about him that stood out to you um, and just his development since Ancelotti has, has taken over as manager here at Everton. I mean, speaking to uh, Dominic, uh, when he came on the show, he talked about how um, he's been sitting down and feeding him um, the work of, um, of great European strikers of like the nineties and early two thousands. And, and Dominic's an incredible student of the game. He's incredibly introspective. He, he really, um, he's not a coaster. He's incredibly demanding. He's a player that really is inc- was as a kid, very self-admittedly very sensitive, um, was very shy, very quiet, uh, had a real insular life. Um, and there's an incredible intellect behind um, Dominic's rise, a real tenacity behind Dominic. The, 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 the seasons at Everton where... He was the striker who couldn't score, really took a toll on him. And he developed a tenacity, which I think has really served him well. He wouldn't have been the same player if he'd scored early and often. Like he's almost growing as a human being through struggle. Um, And this 
this second coming of Dominic Calvert-Lewin has come from hard work, from a determination. He's got an awareness um, that it can all go tomorrow and that the work that got him here is an intrinsic part of him continuing to score. I love all, by the way, all of these are just great human traits, not just footballing ones. I do see in Dominic's story just qualities to live by, whether your listeners are great footballers or just not footballers at all. Dominic, the tenacity, grind, hard work, self-awareness, the humility. God, everything that's good is in that Dominic Carver-Lewin story. And the difference between him and us is that he's got big air. He's got incredible leaps. He's got incredible vert. And he's a big funny, hmm? He said big hair then. Oh no, he's, he's got <laughs> God. I, God, I do miss Marwan Fellaini. But I, um, <laughs> he's got. He's he's also. I mean, another one. He's bloody good at football. Everton, funny enough, don't use his greatest trait as often as they could do. Like he can out jump. If he was an NBA player, uh, we would be we would be just posting him up all the bloody time and just uh, knowing that he can just jump higher than any other human being and playing to that strength. So many of the balls come off his shins, his knee. I mean, that, by the way. We laugh at that, that he can't score. You know, so many of his goals are kind of clumsy bundlings over the line. Gert Muller, the great German striker that scored like 12, I think maybe one or two goals off, 12,700,063 goals. So many of those came off his shin, his knees, his thighs, his testicles, whatever. <laughs> it's like, um, God love Dominic Carvalho. That is the sign of a great striker. And we don't even use his best ability to the full potential his heading ability his ability to leap higher than any other human being in the Premier League but I love Dominic Lewandowski I love Dominic Lewandowski I love <laughs> Dominic Calvert Lewandowski now there that is a that is a mating that needs to happen mm-hmm. yeah I love him I love everything about him on and off the field I, th- I think you summed it up there that like there's sort of an element of like a poacher about him isn't it that he doesn't score sort of worldies he's just he's always in the right place at the right time now and I think it's two goals at Fulham kind of appears to my start because you know the first one kind of he bundles in um, almost inadvertently and the second one is just really well taken first you know one touch finish as well but when, when you speak when you speak to him like I, I have interviewed Harry Kane and I did a long winded yeah. question which was like Harry the ball you make seem to him in the box you seem to make the ball come to you yeah how do you do it and Harry Kane just said, I don't know, really. And when you ask, when you ask Dominic Cavalloon the same question, he is, he can, he's actually working so hard on finding crevices of space. That's really where his focus is. And that's where Carlo's come in and has, has fed him uh, um, kind of in Zaghi. I mean, I, 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 when he says he's watching YouTubes of the great strikers, I hope those great strikers are Jota and Mikel Antonio. But he's, he is watching like the classic goal poachers of the of the late nineties, early two thousands, and he's really he's really thinking his way into those spaces. And it takes incredible work. I mean, we laugh. They come here, you know. He's bending over. He's, they're going in off his arse cheeks, whatever. But my God, so much work went to putting those arse cheeks in the right position, just a foot away yeah. from the goal line, and that's why I love him. Yeah, I think um, you know he often gets this. Uh this name as, as a, as a tap-in merchant. And, and I look at that and I, you know, I say, you know, a good striker is always in a good position. You know, I think it was Miroslav Klose who currently is the leading goal scorer in um, German or in world cup history. 
Um, and everybody used to talk about him always kind of just getting tapping goals in the World Cup and stuff like that. And um, it's not about tapping goals, not about where the goal scored from. He's just in the right position. You have to be in the right position to be a good striker um, and to, to find those spots and to be able to tap that ball in. And I think that's, um, you know, I think that's what he's starting to learn right now is just being in that right position so that when the ball gets there, he's already there or he's, you know, making that run into that space. And I think that's been the biggest part about his development. Um, anything else you guys want to talk about before we move on from, uh, from the, this and kind of get into a little bit of, of Everton news and a little bit more general stuff? Here's Brian Warrior signed for just quickly on uh, John Joe Kenny. I think the fact that he didn't make the squad was kind of maybe a, quite telling as to where he fits in or not, you know, to like future Everton plans. But then, I, like you said, Alex Awobi, um looks far more dangerous in that sort of position than he has done anywhere else for Everton, certainly this season. So, um, just reading Pete's five talent stats for the website, um, complete five dribbles, which obviously one of them led to that second goal where he, he ran through about three fallen players on his own. Yeah. Um, so, maybe a new home for Iwobi and maybe a new home for John Joe Kenny as well somewhere else. But, um, yeah, I think be interested to see, obviously, whether when Coleman comes back, whether we revert back to four, 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 four at the back, or whether you know it will be maybe given more of a run at that wing back position because he's never looked like a winger, but he he looked a lot more comfortable in a wing back. So, um, you know, be interesting to see what Ancelotti does there because he obviously doesn't. He's never really played him in a central role where a lot of people seem to think he might be better suited. Uh, so, I think hopefully he can build on on his performance on Sunday and and uh, you know finally rediscover his form like Rod said that he had at the start of his Everton career. Yeah, absolutely. And Raj, um, you know, I know uh, once we get into some of the other stuff, you're gonna you're gonna head out. But do you want to just before you you head out here? Do you want to just talk about the uh, the Ancelotti interview? Kind of do a little promo for you guys uh, um, before it uh, airs. Uh, what's gonna air next week? Uh, on Monday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on NBCSN. Yeah, I mean, he's just a beautiful man. He really is a uh, noble, warm um, experience, life experience. I mean, his story is um, you know, to come from um, his kind of rural roots and to become he's just a connoisseur of life. And, and uh, as someone that... I mean, he just kind of descended from the heavens down to Goodison Park, and it was like, "What? How did this happen? Is it going to work? Is it? Is it just another Everton move where we've kind of got a, a Panini sticker book of great footballers, and we're just pulling another one in and and flinging them in?" And this manager, I mean, the management carousel for Everton has been one of the most disturbing parts of kind of the past decade of of, of being a fan. We used to watch Italian teams in the in the early 90s and they go through like five managers in a season and you'd be like how does that even happen and then suddenly we got like big sam at the helm and um and then we haven't and unzi and oh, i mean it's just like a carousel of of human flesh leading our team uh onto the field and you realize oh that's 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 happened and clubs like ours that are community clubs that are you know clubs where speedo mick is just <laughs> such a of human wonder a community first club a family club they need stability and they need leadership and they need someone that also appreciates how special the club is 
And I think in this interview that um, we're running on Saturday, on sorry, on Monday, is that you'll really get just a sense of of the man, how much he appreciates savers, understands what's unique about Everton. In the same way, by the way, Bobby Martinez really did, really, really did. But he's had more than anything. He's having an incredibly good time, which is which is fantastic. We've got a brutal run approaching. I mean, leads the game against just frenzied Buccaneers. Just going to charge at that Everton bat line. And I pray that we can parry them. They may just overwhelm us. And then Burnley. Then you look, it's Chelsea, Leicester, Arsenal, Man City, Man United in the Carabao Cup. I mean, this is a season-defining run. And in the past, when we've had season-defining runs, I defined our season not in the way that we've always dreamed, but it'll be Ancelotti-defining. So um, I do, listen to the interview, and I think you'll have you'll have confidence, even if it turns out to be false confidence. Bite your arm off for some false confidence. Absolutely. Yeah. Real quick, prediction for Leeds. What are you thinking? 5-0 Everton, pretty sure. <laughs> it'll be uh, with a Tony Hibber hat-trick. I've put oh, awesome. money on that. The, it's going to be... Um, it's going to be amazing. I think it's going to be a, a incredible test. Leeds can leak goals. Um, Everton can score goals um, against teams that charge on. I mean, where there's a Rich Arlison and a DCL, there's there's hope. But that bat line, which is shaky in confidence. I mean, the the, the symbol of 2020 for me, just the ultimate emblem is the image of Jordan Pickford diving. I mean, just, he gets incredible height and he dives with both arms out and he kind of flails and, and then lands on the floor of a third. Unfortunately, he's doing it about three to four seconds after the ball has already <laughs> gone past him and it's spinning on the floor in the back of the net already. He does these incredibly heroic vein uh, dives and a lot of the backline lack of confidence comes from a goalkeeper. You saw that with Chelsea and what happened with them. They ultimately made a goalkeeping change. But when defenders don't have full confidence in their goalkeeper, that it's a it's a relationship of communication. When you when instead of confidence you have doubt sewn in your head, everything gets sucked backwards. And with the the furious, frenzied murder ball that leads through at their opponents, it gives me pause for thought. I'll be candid, though. I feel fear ahead of every game. That's always my delight. Like, I woke up at 6.30 a.m. on Saturday, and I was so terrified. I was like, Fulham. I'm like, if I can work myself into a frenzy of fear about Fulham, then you should discount and not listen to anything I'm saying. Go with the first <laughs> gut, 5-0, the Tony Hibbert hat trick, and have a gorgeous weekend, whatever you do, Everton fans. And... It's a gift to support this team. It really is. You know, ultimately, for me, football is about feeling feelings. And that Fulham game, Everton made us feel every single human emotion in the course of 90 minutes. And that's what I'm grateful for to this football team. They, they really make us feel alive. And that is a, in 2020, this year of darkness, just this year of chaos, this year of pandemic, this year of of turbulence to, to feel alive and to feel things, to feel anything. That's a gift. So I'm incredibly grateful. I love what you guys do. I love um, the whole brand, your persona, your platform, um, and, and the joy that you bring to so many Everton fans. So it's amazing to be with you, gents.
Yes, it's it's amazing Thank to have you on. We really appreciate it. Um, you know, it was great speaking to you. It's a gift for us. So um, thank you. And, um, you know, Raj, for everybody out there who's still listening, uh, we're going to take a quick break. But, Raj, thanks so much. We appreciate you joining us. Up the fucking toffees. All right. Uh, welcome back. Um, we're going to talk a little bit now about some of the General Everton news um, that we have here. Um, obviously, uh, I think the biggest thing, really the only thing that we really need to talk about in this section, is um, the recent news that the fans are set to be let, uh, set to be allowed back by December second when um, the UK national lockdown ends. Um, it seems that in the, they've broken it down into tiers, and Matthew, maybe you can speak a little bit. Um, yeah, sure. on this, but it seems that they've broken it down into tiers. Tier one groups will be able to have 4,000 fans. Two, tier two groups will be able to have 2,000 fans. Tier three, no fans. Um, Liverpool, and this is based by area, Liverpool was in tier three before the national lockdown began um, at, the, at the start of November. So, Matthew, just again, um, just go break that down a little bit and kind of give us a little bit of what you um, – what you yeah, so obviously we had lo- we we had the first lockdown because of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, March onwards, um, which then kind of filtered away into kind of, are we still in lockdown? Are we not still in lockdown? Um, we then got this tier system in I think October, where based on sort of our rate, which is like the you know the rate of cases or uh, probability of cases. You put into these tiers. Um, so Liverpool, I, th- I think I'm right in saying, was in tier two to begin with, and then moved down into tier three um, because the number of cases became so widespread. Um, now, whether that will be the same or not, I mean, so we're, not, we're basically we're in a national lockdown again now, and have been for three weeks or so. People who don't know, um, which ends on the second of December, which will probably then go back to tier systems. Um, which they think they're announcing later today, recording this on Wednesday or certainly later this week. So I don't expect Liverpool to be in tier one, certainly, um, maybe tier two. But um, obviously, you know, with regards to letting fans in, it will still be like a tiny proportion of Goodison that will be occupied by fans. And there's still not really any great clarity on how they will do this, like, because obviously not every every match going Evertonian lives in Liverpool. So if they do, if they say if they draw names out of a raffle, which seems like the fairest way to do it, what happens if someone from um, a region where COVID is more prevalent than Liverpool gets picked and they have to travel and and whatever else? So I think there's a lot of sort of hoops to jump through before this is ironed out, but. I don't know, but I'm I'm kind of conflicted on this because I think it's good for lower. I mean, this will obviously be the same everywhere in in England. So lower league clubs uh, who normally only get like average gate game, you know, attendances of say no higher than ten thousand at most. Yeah. This will probably be kind of almost back, not back to normal, but certainly close to that maybe. Um, and they obviously need the money a lot more desperately than Premier League clubs will. So I kind of feel like either they should have allowed, if they were going to make a difference financially, they should have allowed more fans in, or they may as well have just not allowed any fans in in, in Premier League games for longer, because I don't see 
I don't know. Uh, also, like, would I go to them if I got picked? Maybe, but I don't think it would be that enjoyable. Like, I'd, yeah, I mean, I'd love to see Everton play in the flesh again, but it's yeah. kind of jarring when you're there with just a smattering of other people, um, you know, with all these kind of COVID precautions to ad- adhere to rightly, but, you know, it does kind of uh, sap away from the kind of experience in the atmosphere. So, um, kind of reminds me of like, I can say like the Atlanta game in the Europa League a few years ago, but even that was like 17,000 when we got battered, what was it, 5 1 or something? Yeah. Um, so, it's, di- it's difficult. I, I don't think it's not easy for Everton or for any other club to organise, but um, I guess it's a step back to normality. That's all I can say. It's a very small, tentative step, but um, it's certainly something. Yeah, no, it's um, obviously it's good to see that fans may be allowed back in soon. Um, like you said, it's a small step um, in the right direction. Um, you know, unfortunately, if Liverpool is in that, that tier three, obviously no fans for Everton. Um, and then it kind of creates a, a weird um, situation where, you know, you go to a game, you know, away games become much more difficult than home games become. Yeah, you know, they're 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 kind of the same as they are right now, and they I guess they become more difficult because you have no fans of, of your own, um, which is. Um, yeah, but they should be, shouldn't they? I mean, away games should be more difficult for that reason. Like, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I feel like, um, you know, there's an advantage to the home. So if say you go to, you know, Chelsea, right, and there's four thousand yeah. fans at Chelsea, um, they come to Everton and there's no fans for. You know them. Okay. You know, yeah. yeah I see. Barking down their throats the whole time, or, yeah. or um, you know, screaming at them, and and it kind of creates that that weird advantage. Obviously, it's you know, this is the year 2020. This is the year of uncertainty and, and weirdness, and you know, it's part of the game. But uh, I would just be unfortunate because those away games will be obviously yeah. hard, but the home games uh, remain kind of as hard as they are. That's now. the thing, isn't it? You're all kind of at the mercy of yeah coronavirus to that to that degree Absolutely. and obviously good news this week or the last few weeks about vaccines which hopefully restores some normality sooner than maybe some people hoped but um i think I'm, I'm more i am certainly more pleased for fans of lower league clubs than i am for like myself because um i would like to go back to goodison like when, when i can but at the same time i don't it wouldn't be there's no way it would be the same as like you know your normal match day with like a bus full of Evertonians and like you know the trip to the to the the crowded pub before the game and then the um you know just the general even like the sort of the smells and the sounds of like a of a a, a full Goodison on match day you know you won't replicate that with four thousand socially distanced people in a ground if that so yeah um I'm not gonna. Not massively excited about it, but it's certainly at least, you know, a, a more positive step than we've had the last few months. So, um, and I just can't stand watching football behind closed doors. Like, I find it very hard to watch any football besides Everton at the moment because it just lacks that sort of X factor for me without the fans yeah. element. Um, well, that's like the thing. The thing for me, and and I guess when, as someone who is American, and and I guess soccer is it is built into my blood as as other yeah. um, other countries, other you know areas. Um, 
with all the sports that we have here. The one thing that sticks out to me and, you know, really in every sport, but specifically in soccer is, is that um, tenacity, the, the, the fans, how involved they are in the game and how passionate they are in that yeah. passion. And you're right. You know, it doesn't have that. And at this point, you know, seven months into what we've been dealing with, having no fans has kind of become, you know, a little bit normal. You forget what a full <laughs> Goodison Park sounds like. Um, but when you look back and you look back at some of these games and you see the commercials with the fans in the stands and the reactions and stuff like that, um, you know, it reminds you of that passion and that excitement that, you know, these, you just, you want to see Dominic Calvert-Lewin scoring a late goal and run into the fans and, 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 and just the, you know, the Gladys street and going crazy. Um, and you don't have that. And that's like that missing factor that, takes for me personally as, as American, yeah. so many different sports to watch. Obviously you do as well, but obviously soccer is at the top of that um, or football is at the top of that. Um, for me as American, that's what separates it from the rest of the sports. And um, you know, it is definitely disappointing missing that for sure. I think, yeah, like the United cup game next month, I would make Everton like nailed on favorites for in a, in a more normal world, just because of the, the elements of like a, the ferocious full Goodison on a yeah on a December Wednesday night with a with a quarter final against Manchester United home to Manchester United. Yeah. Um without that I think maybe even to the playing field a bit obviously. Um and I'm not sure how far two or four thousand fans um who have been very strictly being told what they can and can't do with regards to things like singing or drinking or shouting. Um will make much of a difference but you just need to sit there well, all you're gonna do is sit there you're not allowed to do anything else Act that's what i do anyway, you know. that's what you do that's anyway. What I've done anyway yeah just sit there and groan yeah and no, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> like i was saying before I, I obviously that one tottenham uh liverpool game that i went to yeah, yeah. England. i went to tottenham liverpool and then i went to uh England, Estonia, I think it was. It was like a uh, Euro Cup qualifier or something like that. Or, Euro, yeah, European Cup qualifier. Um, and it's just like – it's hard not – because we sat in the Tottenham supporter section for the for the Tottenham game, and it's hard not to get drawn into that. And, you know, as someone who's just looking to experience the the atmosphere of a, of a football game over in England, you know, it's even – even if, you know, obviously it helped that they were playing Liverpool, so I had a little bit more uh, – you know, mm-hmm. more incentive to root against them and, and join in on the Tottenham cheers a little bit. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's, it's a different world when you have, you know, what, 40,000 Everton fans, 40,000 football fans screaming at you on the pitch. And I think, um, I don't know who I said, who liked this or retweeted it, but Dominic Calvert-Lewin actually mentioned that. Um, he mentioned that, in, um, you know, I, I guess he mentioned it in some comments he was talking about, about having fans in the stands. And he's like, you know, it definitely is different when you have people screaming down your back and, and, you know, it's, he mentioned the pressure, um, and, and, and how, as Raj mentioned, you know, he was sensitive to that stuff and you have to learn to not be sensitive to that stuff. Hmm. Um, and I think that probably has helped a lot of footballers, um, over the past seven yeah. months kind of develop. And maybe that's a big part of what has helped. Dominic Calvert-Lewin gain that confidence that he needs to get to that next level. Um, but it, it's just, it's different for the players. It's different for the fans. It's different for people watching on TV. It's, it's just completely different overall. And it's, um, 
Yeah, I think I would try it. I, would say, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. It's not like I would, you know, outright say I wouldn't go if I got picked. It's just I would imagine the experience would be so kind of detached from normal, yeah, like normal yeah. football match that I wouldn't. It would be such diminishing returns. But yeah, I mean, we'll for us, for us over here, uh, sports in certain areas are allowed to have fans. There's definitely there's fans in yeah, yeah. in New York, New Jersey, the tri-state area. You're not. There's no fans, okay. um, and I have. Um, I have season tickets to American football, the, the Giants. Um, so obviously not being able to go to those games kind of sucks because um, those are always fun to go to, even, you know, even though I'm not a yeah. Giants fan, I'm a Titans fan. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, obviously we'll, we'll see how it all plays out, but um, looks like things might be trending in the right direction of having fans back in, in stadiums as soon as December. So, all right, um, we're going to take another quick break before we get into uh, the preview for Everton Leeds and, and wrap this, uh, this episode up. Um, but, uh, yeah, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back after that. All right, back now for the Everton Leeds preview. Uh, obviously, as you guys I'm sure already know, Saturday, November 28th, this match will take place. Uh, it'll be 5.30 p.m. over in England, uh, but it'll be 12.30 p.m. Eastern time here uh, in America. That um, means, I think, 9.30 a.m. for you guys out on the West Coast. Um, Leeds is first season back in the Premier League since 2003-2004. So far, they've played nine. They've won three. They've drawn two. They've lost four. Um, they're 14th in the table. Um, obviously, the big stat that stands out for Leeds um, – in reference to uh, Everton and, and what we're going to see, they have 17 goals conceded so far this season, which is only one more than Everton, but, um, and, and only Fulham and West Brom have conceded more. They both conceded 18, uh, but they kept their first clean sheet of the season um, this past Sunday against Arsenal in a zero, zero draw. Second, uh, sorry. sorry, that's my mistake. I put that on the agenda. Second, but yeah. Oh, second, second. There you go. Yeah, they beat both three nil, didn't they? I think so. Yes, correct. They did beat Villa Villa three 0 um, yeah. with Patrick Bamford. Patrick, uh, I think he had. I think he had two goals in that game, maybe three. He um, got a hat trick. Yeah, yeah he, channeled he, his, he channeled his inner Calvert Lewin. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but yeah. So uh, so the second clean shoot of the season with a home uh, scoreless draw against Arsenal. Um, Matthew, your thoughts on Leeds under Marco Bielsa? Well, they're certainly fun, aren't they? Uh, um, you know. They're kind of taking that mantle from Bournemouth, I guess, in some ways, and they're, they're pretty enthralling to watch. Um, I think it's weird because they they beat Villa, and then they were kind of people were, you know, touting them for maybe a European finish, and then since then they haven't won a game, and they're 14th, and it kind of shows you how congested that middle of the table is at the moment. Um, and obviously, they. I think what you've got to remember is the, these are these are mostly championship players who've been elevated to another level under Marcelo Bielsa. Um, so naturally, you are at times going to get sort of championship level defending, championship level finishing, as we maybe saw against Arsenal when they really should have beaten Arsenal with the chances that they had. Um, yeah. But it's not a game that I'm massively confident about because. You know, when Leeds click, they've been they've been really fantastic to watch, like in the Aston Villa game. Um, they obviously gave Liverpool a really good game in the first week of the season as well. 
um, and really they only lost that because of stupid mistakes at the back. So I'm expecting a hard game. I'm expect I'm not expecting another clean, uh, second clean sheet of the season from Everton. I think it'd probably be pretty high scoring again. Um, but I think that Leeds is kind of a better Fulham in terms of going forward. Well, yeah, but I don't I don't think. I think if we were playing Leeds well, last weekend um, and we had given the chances that we gave Fulham, we mm-hmm. would have tied or possibly even lost the game. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, I'm sure they would have put away the penalty, which would have tied the game, and then I, I think they probably would have taken advantage of some of the other chances. Yeah, Fulham didn't score penalties, do they? <laughs> um, I, think, I don't think they should be feared, as maybe some people thought they should be at the start of the season. I think there are quite obvious weaknesses in their team. Like I said, they're just mostly championship players whose game has been raised so much by a world-class coach um, and a manager. So, if, you know, if we're being honest, would you be disappointed if Everton drew this year? On, on paper, yeah. Um, yeah. And ahead of that, like Roger was saying before, that run we've got in December is so daunting that if we can, go, if we can win this and then beat Burnley next week, then you go into that with three games, three wins in a row. Um, such a sort of confidence booster ahead of that, and you know, let's be honest, we should we should beat Leeds, really, shouldn't we? Um, as as you know, I mean, if, as they have been well, if the defense plays well, then yeah, I think I think that's the determining factor. I mean, week in and week out, it's the determining factor. But um, you know, specifically in this one, if we can hold Leeds to a goal. You know, even you know, obviously not a clean sheet, but if we can even hold them just to a goal, I think we have a very, very good shot of winning this this game. Um, but it falls in the defense and what Carlo Ancelotti does, and and you know, I guess that's a perfect segue into the next question: What changes should Ancelotti consider making um, going into this match? Uh, well, if you drop your Mina because I think Mina's not played well enough to keep his place. Um, and for the reasons that I said before, I just think he's not a good fit alongside Michael Keane. Yeah. So whether you know it's Mason Holgate and Godfrey in a back three with Keane, or Holgate and Keane, which I think is probably our best defensive pairing, um, I would love to do that. Um, other than that, I'm not sure. I mean, would you stick to the back three? I don't, I don't know. I think it will be probably deserves another shot playing there. But yeah, um... whether it's kind of a long term solution or just you know. I think Ancelotti said before he's not got like one set formation. He likes to mix and match depending on the opponents that we're playing. So, which is a good thing. Which is yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, that we you know we, we do this podcast and we feel like at other points you know, especially when I did one with Chris and Adam, we were begging yeah, yeah. for somebody to be. Uh, well, I mean, with Silver, for example, it was you know until the last week or so when we we went to three at the back under him, it was invariably four two three one, wasn't it? Just no matter yeah. who we played or so. Exactly. Nice to see a bit more flexibility there. Um, but I'm quite interested to see how Iwobi does there again. I, yeah, um, I think, but I would suspect, to be honest, I would suspect that Coleman is fit and Coleman will play right back, so maybe not. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, th- I, think, I think if you're given, given the same players available, he probably goes with the 3-5-2 because, as we said, you know, uh, very similar to Fulham um, defensively in terms of conceding goals. Um, and very similar to Fulham having some sort of attacking, uh, obviously a little bit better of an attacking presence. Um, so obviously the three five two gives you that 
um, kind of guard. Um, I wonder. I wonder but, if three five two will be kind of the backup to Coleman now. So instead of just swapping Coleman for Kenny, yeah, then he would, I do, you would prefer to go three at the back, and then it would, someone like it will be probably as, as a wing back. Yeah, I just I don't. Also, I don't I can't see, especially if Awobi keeps performing like this. I, it's John Joe Kenny, you know, he's had his chances, especially yeah, yeah. already this season, and he just he hasn't shown that he can be a not solid right back replacement for Coleman. So no, he's not. He's not good enough. I don't think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, changes. If Coleman's fit, I would expect it to be a back four again. Uh, if it is a back four, I'd like to see Mino and uh, sorry, Holgate and Keane. Yeah. Um, I, Midfield, I think I don't think I change anything about midfield. Well, if you go to a four-four-two, do you or or if you would change the formation of four at the back at least? Do you see maybe moving Hamas to the middle a little bit um, and putting a Wobi on that right side, or or is you know would you stick with just a four-four-two or a four-four-five? No, because Wobi played well at right wing back, but he's stunk when he's played at right wing, doesn't he? So yeah. Whether you play him centrally and Rodriguez on the wing, where again it's not his best position, but he's done well there more often than not for us. So um, I guess what you can say is that these are nice headaches to have. It's not like you know, it's not like Ancelotti's got to decide which bad player to take out for another bad player, is it? These are these are better problems for him, selection headaches for him to have than let's say last season. So um, yeah, I would say. Certainly, certainly the one I would certainly make is Mina for Holgate. I think that one is a necessity, really, at the moment, just the way Mina's been playing. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. No matter what, I think we I think Mina's got to we got to give Mina a rest there and, and and put Holgate back in, and and hopefully that's you know you know a defense changing move um, that would really help us. Um, but yeah. anything else you really want to talk about before we get into predictions with this one? Um, I can't share Roger's optimism predictions wise, I don't think. I think we'll win. 2 1. 2 1. I think we'll win. Um, but somehow I can't see Tony Hewitt scoring hat trick. You can't? So I can't? No, and I think even more unlikely is Everton keeping a clean sheet. So, um, oh, I mean, yeah, I, 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 I'll go for 2 1. Although I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of goals in this because. Isn't that that's probably the most damning, uh, damning part of it all? That it's more likely that Tony Hibbert comes out of retirement and scores a hat trick, yeah. and we don't concede a goal. But, but also, um, if we keep having to, if we keep having to score three goals a game, because it's now two plus goals conceded in what last six games, if we keep having to score three goals a game, we're going to come unstuck eventually, aren't we? Like we did against United and Newcastle and Southampton. So, um. That is a major concern. It's, I saw someone say it's a bit like the Martinez team in a way where, you know, you, you could back up to score, but maybe not so much keep them out at the other end. Yeah. Um, and Ancelotti will know that, I'm sure. And, and I'm confident that we will get a lot better defensively, but for the time being, it's, it's not something where pre-match you can say with any confidence that Everton are going to keep a clean sheet this week. Yeah. I, um... I have no defensive worries. I've lost all the optimism I have. I'm not a typically optimistic person to begin with. So naturally, you know, I'm, I'm in the, you know, my mindset, I'm, I'm done predicting wins. <laughs> um, they never seem to work out. Um, no, I think, I think, I don't know. I just see a high score in one. I'm thinking two, two, three, three, something like that. I just, 
if Everton finished off the game against Fulham, finished that game off, you know, 5-2 or something like that, and, and like, like the West Brom match, I think I'd feel a little bit more confident about their abilities going forward into this Leeds match. Um, obviously, the way that they finished things off with, you know, giving up the goal and the penalty and things going, you know, a little bit, a little bit to shit in the, the you know, the, the second half there and, and them not playing as well as they did in the first half. That worries me a little bit. Raj did bring up a good point in the fact that, obviously, a lot of these guys played three World Cup matches in the course of a week and a half yeah, yeah. and then traveled from South America to get back for the match on Sunday. Um, and who knows, maybe, you know, obviously that game was supposed to be played on Saturday, I think. Um, but if that game gets, um, doesn't get moved, maybe we do tie that game or lose that game. So, um, hmm. you know, that's obviously a big factor, but I'm going to go with a two, two, three, three, something like that. Um, all right, Matthew, thank you as always for joining uh, me, um, to Raj again. Uh, thank you for, uh, thank, thank you to Roger Bennett for coming on, um, and talking to us a little bit about. Everton and, and breaking down the, the, the Fulham match. Um, always, um, always great to, to see him. He's always a, a great character and, and so much fun to be with. So um, really good that we got him on the podcast and, and we're able to uh, feel some of that on the podcast um, for you guys out there. Um, thank you for listening. Make sure you keep subscribing, uh, following, downloading, whatever it is that you got to do to get this podcast each and every week uh, on whatever platform. Um, uh, you know, hopefully you guys keep doing that and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week.